Hello, Sublation Media viewers, readers, and listeners. It's me again, Douglas Lane. And in this video, I'll be arguing that our current media environment makes critical thinking and self-reflection more remote than they were in the past, even more difficult than they were in the supposedly conformist and conservative Reagan era. Specifically, I think that David Letterman's recent interview with Volodymyr Zelensky demonstrates how the segmentation and siloing of today's digital media has had a detrimental effect on our self-understanding and helps to foreclose the possibility of political change, even as we are given more and more access to media personalities and even as media personalities find more and more freedom in the realm of self-expression. I'll also try to sketch out some of the ideas of German philosopher Walter Benjamin, specifically from his essay, Art in the Age of Mechanical Reproduction. To begin with, though, I should confess that I'm a long-standing fan of David Letterman. When I was a teenager in the 80s, this smirking talk show host with his odd assortment of guests and performers gave me a glimpse into what was, I later found out, the New York avant-garde, or the downtown scene, that began two decades before Letterman. My next guests are among the strangest rock performers to come along in quite some time. The latest album is entitled, Oh No, It's Devo. Please welcome Devo. Rising out of and founding the art movement known as Fluxus, the downtown scene included artists, performers, and musicians. The downtown music scene defined itself in opposition to the long hair, classical music tradition, and the commercialized approach to pop music that dominated uptown Manhattan. In the realm of art music, the scene included John Cage, Philip Glass, John Zorn, Laurie Anderson, Brian Eno, Talking Heads, Sonic Youth, and many others. When it came to theater and comedy, the downtown scene produced a hybrid called performance art. Performance art can include music, dance, monologues, narratives, slapping raw meat on your face, having your clothes cut to pieces by an audience of admirers, and a lot else. <laughs> and I have to say that you are more provocative in person than an attractive female. I lied to you. I'm not really Suzanne Summers. I just wanted to be on television. I'm sorry. I'm really sorry. Please, please don't put me in jail. I'm sorry. I'll never do it again. I promise. I'm sorry. Really, I'm very sorry. I'm sorry. Not less than an hour ago, the man told me he was Suzanne Summers. In the 80s, Letterman's show relied upon the sensibility of contemporary New York, of the downtown scene, and on the offbeat sensibility of Meryl Marco the comedy writer who came from the competing coast, to differentiate itself not only from Carson's Tonight Show, but really from the rest of television altogether. To underline the point with an overstatement, Late Night with David Letterman was how the revolutionary ambitions of Fluxus, an art movement that at its core was aiming at overturning the foundations of bourgeois culture and cultural production, met the mainstream. Always a pleasure to have 
Always a pleasure to have the young talent on the show. We'll be right back. To be less hyperbolic, New York's counterculture in the 70s and 80s was defined by an anti-art movement, and consequently, Late Night with David Letterman was an anti-talk show. He's embarrassed. David doesn't like to blow his own horn, but this is People Magazine on the stands right now. Let's forget it now. That's enough. Well, let me just on. read one well, quote. Look at all the stuff I have to do here. One quick quote from it that you say about, about what, what, what you think about our show and what its purpose is. We want to pierce that flat TV screen. <laughs> and I think you do it every single night, David Letterman. You really do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Pierce this. In 2015, the year Letterman retired from his CBS show and the retrospectives rolled out, everyone agreed that Letterman had both disrupted and changed television forever. Before Letterman, television was conformist, placid, a vehicle for toothpaste commercials, and the reinforcement of the cultural norms required to sell toothpaste. After Letterman, television was cynical, self-conscious, and prone to poking fun at itself and its own pretensions. These assessments of Letterman risked reifying or naturalizing the television culture Letterman opposed. Television itself was perceived as a disruptive force at its inception, and the mass society which produced TV has always relied upon disruption, innovation, and even crisis in order to function and cohere. And 20th century conservative critics of television often marshaled the same complaints against TV as the 19th century critics had leveled against the cabaret. TV created shallow individuals. It disconnected people from their communities and traditions in exchange for the prospect of being a star, or if not that, then at least in exchange for the thrill of being a guest on a chat show. One more thing, I've always oh, wanted brother. to... You've been a pain in the all night. What is it? I've always wanted to do this in national TV. Uh-oh, wait a minute, Hal, Hal, hold it. Get ready in the control room. Tonight, tonight, <laughs> Whereas the cabarets ripped people from home and hearth in order to transform them into spectators and performers, into a people consumed by an urge to look good in public. Television had always been both the destroyer of traditional values and the purveyor of norms and standards. It both brought the confusion of city life to the outskirts of the nation and told everyone everywhere how to live and who to be. Turn around the other way and... Uh... This contradiction between the emancipatory and the restrictive, between liberty and oppression, runs deep. It is, apparently, built into the technology itself. In 1935, the philosopher and cultural critic Walter Benjamin published his most famous work entitled art in the age of mechanical reproduction and in the essay he explained how photography and cinema were both more advanced than previous forms of art and how they risked creating conditions of conformity and stasis. Benjamin was a Marxist while conservative critics approached television as a disruptive force in society and liberals worried about the conformity that might be spread by the televisual image 
Benjamin attempted to understand how the contradiction in moving images and movies was a reflection of the contradiction in society and to find an opportunity for radical change in these moving images and in the audiences for them, both. For Benjamin, mass audiences were not passive spectators of movie ideologies, but potential agents of world historic change. The movies could, Benjamin thought, facilitate the organizing of the working class to overthrow bourgeois property relations. In his essay on mechanical reproduction, he argued that photography and particularly the moving images of cinema created the potential for audiences to develop revolutionary habits because movies overturned what he called the cult value in art and created shocks that distracted the audience. Before the modern era, artworks were primarily objects of ritual. A painting or statue would have value in so much as it was part of a magical ceremony or religious practice. Such a value would be attached to a particular object in its particular place, but with the advent of photography and particularly the moving images in films, art began to lose this cult value. Instead, what lent an image its significance was its ability to draw a crowd for exhibition, and the ability to draw a crowd relied upon the movie's participation in the more democratic art culture that modern techniques of art production and reproduction required. Benjamin believed that within capitalist countries, the film industry would attempt to spur the interest of the masses through illusion-promoting spectacles and dubious speculations. However, at base, film was aimed at and gained its value from the masses and not just from money. Movies were inherently progressive. Right from the beginning, it was my contention. I read the NBC research, and if we would have had more sex, more violence on the show, I think we would have done better right from the start. Sex and violence? Sex and violence. And so I would like to share a little sex and violence. See, it's still early. We still have uh, 25 Maybe, minutes. 25 Maybe, minutes. Maybe the show will turn be on it, after Turn, it right, turn it right around. Okay. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, February. And for the gals. January. Whoa! Maybe you've got something there. And for everyone else. A little violence now? Something for the entire family. Some violence, ladies and gentlemen. Alienation in art was a positive development. Following the playwright and director Bertolt Breck, Benjamin believed that the aim of art should be to break the spell of traditional life and help bring the audience to a new understanding of their own condition in the world. Benjamin was an admirer of Brecht's alienation effect, wherein actors would not attempt to get the audience to identify with the characters, but would always remind the viewers of the artificiality, the theatricality of the performance. Using captions, monologues, and even didactic lectures, Brecht attempted to create the conditions for critical engagement with both theater and with life itself. Benjamin believed that when a viewer was encountering moving images on the screen, he could no longer relate to them as if they were immediately present, but had to take into account the process through which they were produced, if only unconsciously. 
He wrote, The shooting of a film, especially of a sound film, affords a spectacle unimaginable anywhere at any time before this. It presents a process in which it is impossible to assign a spectator a viewpoint which would exclude from the actual scene such extraneous accessories as camera equipment, lighting machinery, staff assistants, etc., unless his eye were on a line parallel with the lens. The moving image alienates the viewer from the aura of the image, but it does so by reaching beyond this aura to some greater reality. And by aura, we also mean occult value. The camera cuts its subject into pieces and fragments it into shots, and the film presents an edited version that the viewer has learned to interpret, not through a conscious effort, but out of habit. The moving image bombards the viewer with multiple shocks. Its shifting nature, its refusal to stand still, does not allow the viewer to contemplate what he sees, but rather what he sees replaces his thoughts. The viewer is distracted by what he sees and cannot fully take it into his pre-existing understanding. Movies and TV programs distract viewers from themselves. And while these forms of art resist direct critical engagement, the contemporary moviegoer is still placed in the position of a critic. According to Benjamin, the moving image, when stripped of its aura, creates an audience of experts, of unconscious critics, picking up their judgments by habit. And in the right hands, films and television programs could become instrumental in our collective liberation, but only to the extent that these moving images belong to the masses. What does the money go for? Where, how is it used? Well, uh, for those of you who don't understand television, as uh, Tom and Al were saying to us, it's, a lot of it is, goes into special effects. Is there a particular piece of uh, equipment out there that interests you? This one. Right, oh, right here? Oh, okay. And don't pull around. Okay, I'll try not to. <laughs> It happens to be the 14th of June, and, and uh, this is a repeat. This is a show. Which is being rerun. We've stumbled into a peculiar area here. Now, this would be the rotating cube. Yes! If the creators of Late Night with David Letterman were critical theorists aimed at liberating the masses, they were most certainly only unconsciously so. Placed in the position to become an innovator in order to meet his contractual obligations with Johnny Carson, Situated in New York City in the aftermath of the 60s and inheriting a tradition within broadcasting that was always both disruptive and normative, it is not surprising that Letterman, at his best, created a television experience that was intentionally alienating. Charles, can you, can you hear me all right? Yeah, gee, I wish someone had mentioned you weren't going to be here. It's, uh, <laughs> it's awkward to come out and do a talk show in front of millions of people, and, and to sit out here by yourself is really... Uh... Well, uh, I, I appreciate you coming, and uh, just keep your hands off my belongings, if you will. Uh, uh, Charles. Looking back on Late Night with David Letterman, we can see that, while Walter Benjamin 
believed that the centralized monopolies that ran Hollywood created spectacles of distraction, spectacles that aimed at conformity and reinforcing conformity. Today's supposedly democratized system of influencers and niche-down content streams is even more deadening. The internet, a medium that many dreamed would break free from the stifling conformity of the mainstream and emancipate us all, has instead only returned cult value to the image. And it is this fact, I think, that explains why the once alienating and innovative entertainer, once innovative David Letterman, has become a soothing voice of the establishment. In the 1980s, Late Night with David Letterman was not an overtly political television program, but was instead an anti-talk show in a strictly formal sense. It was only by accepting his position on network television, only by keeping his personal opinions out of his program, and by attempting to entertain a truly mass audience, that Letterman could find the freedom to innovate. His first program, The David Letterman Show, featured a conventional talk show host who was stuck in an entirely unconventional talk show. Later, on Late Night with David Letterman, Dave took a more adversarial stance toward the network and towards television. But it wasn't Dave, but the show itself, the way the show broke the rules, that was shocking. Today, on Netflix, David Letterman is the draw, while the show itself is entirely conventional. We get to experience interviews not with the guests that television culture throws at Dave, but rather that he handpicks as interesting. As Stuart Heritage, a TV critic at The Guardian, pointed out in 2019, there are no jokes, there's no grouchiness, there's no longer any instinct for havoc. Instead, it's about a kindly old man being deferential to a succession of people who only partly deserve it. And this explains why Letterman has taken up the task of interrogating the world historic crisis in Ukraine by reducing it to a 44-minute show exhibiting nothing but Dave's own bland, credulous personal politics. In the interview, Letterman asked Zelensky about how Zelensky feels about what his daily routine is like and about what Zelensky's personal hopes are, both in terms of his political career and in terms of his family life and personal psychology. But he doesn't ask until the very end is what the risks are for the world if Ukraine and Russia continue fighting. What he doesn't ask is what the prospects for a peaceful resolution might be. But a reviewer who can read between the lines gets an answer to this question regardless. From Zelensky's perspective, there are no chances for a peaceful negotiation. The sort of concessions that would be necessary are not explored on the program, but they are foreclosed against. The fact that this reduction of politics to the personal, the attenuation of thought to the level of moralistic pieties, serves the establishment nicely, is nearly a happy accident. What is truly driving it is the transformation of the moving image, the fragmentation of the fragments. In an era without a culture industry, but peopled instead with content creators, it is inevitable that the celebrities of the past should be reduced to level of brand name individuals without any of the old responsibilities of fame.
Okay, well, let's get right to uh, the business uh, at hand tonight. Tonight's topic of discussion is thermonuclear war and the proliferation of nuclear weapons and what that means to our generation, but more importantly, what that means to future generations, to our children. Um, will they wake up to a paradise or really a vast wasteland? And uh, joining us from his studios in New York City is uh, a figure from another sort of vast wasteland, uh, the king of late night himself, David Letterman. David, David, are you there? Yeah, I'm right here, uh, Chris. <laughs> I, well, uh, <laughs> thank Terry, Terry Gar is here also. I Give can't me. see her. Terry's right oh, here. Oh, there she is. There Hi, Terry. Hi, Chris. Hi. Gee, you smell terrific. Thank you. <laughs> okay, well, Dave, the topic of discussion tonight is nuclear war. Uh -huh. Now, uh, you claim to preside over a show that seems to have the pulse on what's going on on the nation today. What, what do you feel about nuclear Armageddon? Well, you know, you know, Chris, I, I certainly have very deep thoughts regarding that, but I try to do a little lighthearted show here, and I'd prefer to keep my political views to myself. What, what do you think about it? Well, you know, I do kind of a lighthearted show here myself, and... Uh, <laughs> And actually, I haven't really had time to weigh both sides uh -huh. of the issue, so I... <laughs> I really couldn't say anything about it either. Uh -huh. yeah. <sighs> you know, you know uh, Chris, I mean, the, the, hair huh? looks, the hair looks great, the, the, set, the set looks great, and the satellite feed is working perfectly. Um, they got all the kinks worked out of it. Yeah, but, I, you know, I think maybe the format is wrong for you. Why don't you just go back to ripping off the, our show, you know, like you used to do. Well, you're breaking up again, and, uh, <laughs> boy, I guess that means that uh, that's all the time we have for Nightlight okay. like tonight. It is a short show. I just want to thank David Letterman. <laughs> I think this overtly apolitical clip, with its absurd premise that Chris Elliott has landed a talk show that ran during and on the set of Letterman's Late Night, was more helpful, more shocking, and critical than Letterman's attempt to tackle the problem and real possibility of nuclear warfare today. In 1987, all that the TV avant-garde could muster was a retreat into absurdity, but at least that absurdity didn't wrap the potential suicide of humanity in a blanket of smug, moralistic pieties about liberal democracy and family values. In the 1980s, the leftist comic book artist Harvey Picar once accused Letterman of being too stupid to be a sellout, of being too ill-informed to be capable of politics. Picar held himself up as a counterexample, appearing on the NBC talk show in order to decry the crimes of the network's parent company, GE. Picar pitted his own personal convictions against the network, against the corporation, and against the audience. Since his retirement, Letterman has expressed some remorse about how he treated Picard. On Howard Stern's confessional radio show, Letterman said, I'm a completely different person now. Right. And I would be so much more better equipped to view the immediate surroundings of that show now than I was when Madonna was on. Right. We, we used to have a, a, a guy uh, on who was a, a cartoonist out of uh, Cleveland. Uh, very, very funny guy. Um, which guy you you talking about? Uh, yeah, not the uh, Harvey. Uh, yeah, Picar. Harvey Picar. Right. Okay. And uh, he was great. He was tremendous. He uh, would would just go after stuff. He would whine. He would go after me. He would go after the network. He would go after everything in yeah. in, in a very uh, committed way. It, it wasn't a gag. It wasn't an act. He would really go to work on you. Right. 
And he, he meant every word of what he was yes, saying. Yes, he was a uh, um, anti-establishment in a way that you don't see guys like that anymore. And that used to really upset me because I just thought, "Come on, Harvey, don't don't do this to us. Come on, just play the game." Blah 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 blah. Now, geez, I I wish I could have had Harvey on every night. With this Netflix show, Letterman is getting what he wished for. He's picking guests based on how he perceives their political and moral value. But what Letterman gets wrong is the merit of Picard's appearances back in the day. It was not because of Picard that those appearances were successful, but rather it was because of the, quote, environment that surrounded both Picard and Letterman. It was a cultural moment that even during the Reagan era was still able to generate a bit of Brechtian alienation. That's what allowed Picard to shock us in our living rooms. But if Harvey were still alive today, a Picard podcast would be anything but shocking. Uh, Monday, there's going to be a show here called... Uh, <laughs> uh, it's called Las Vegas Gambit, and you're going to be hearing a lot of these things. Uh, and the neat part about this show, and I'll be watching, you, you darn bet I'll be watching... <laughs> Is it, it features the excitement of Las Vegas plus a human deck of 52 cards. Now here to sing a visual tribute to that show, Harv Man, ladies and gentlemen, and our salute to Las Vegas Gambit. It's the Las Vegas Gambit Show. <laughs> the Las Vegas Gambit Show. Cash and fabulous prizes, come and be seen. 